Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Hmm. That's better. It's better for everybody. Our text comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, starting in verse 25, and then uh, we're moving finally into chapter 5, and then there's only six chapters in Ephesians, so we ought to be able to get through that in a year or so, I think. So uh, I'm actually thinking about, uh, we'll probably wrap things up uh, in Ephesians by mid-October or so, and then I've got some ideas about what's to come next. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, listen to the Word of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Father, we ask this morning that you would once again make your book live for us. If there is to be any hope for any change, if there is to be any hope for us to become more like Jesus, It cannot be through human techniques. It must be through the ministry and power of the Spirit of God. And God, you have ordained that normally that will happen through the mediation of your holy word as your people are gathered on your day in your house and the man whom you have called stands up to speak your word. Things happen. A spiritual transaction takes place. It goes forth, your word does, and it does things in our minds and our hearts. It corrects, it rebukes, it exhorts, it trains in righteousness, and it brings back fruit to you. And that's our only hope. So, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth. 
waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, I just want to do a quick glance backward at where we've been since attendance has been a little off in these past few weeks with everyone traveling. Um, In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul spoke to us about the general lifestyle of the lost person. And uh, the lost pagan culture out of which the Ephesians had been converted was one of great wickedness. It was one of sin and darkness and confusion and inescapable misery, both in this world and, of course, then in the world to come. And he went into some detail about this, and we saw that this passage parallels Romans 1 nicely, where Paul went into a great deal of detail about all of these things, about the hopeless life of the person who is lost. But, Paul says to his readers, you know better. You were taught the truth as it is in Jesus. You learned Christ. You learned to take off the old self, and you learned to put on the new self. The old self was oriented towards all that lost and pagan people live for. It was oriented towards that that way of life. This new self, however, is oriented towards a life that is marked by true righteousness and true holiness. And to be able to do that as a habit or a pattern of life is the mark of a true disciple. To be able to take off the old man and to put on the new man is the, is the mark of a, of, of a person who has actually become born again. And if you're unable at all to put off the old self and to put on the new self, well, then you're probably not yet saved. And there's no shame in that. There really isn't. Simply turn to Jesus where you're at and ask Him to save you and ask Him to begin filling you with His presence and His power, and He will do what you ask. He promises He's not going to throw out people who sincerely come to Him seeking grace. So just say, you know what, Lord? I am not in the position that I thought I was in. And so I'm just going to ask you to to put me in the position I need to be in and save me and fill me with your power. Being actually born again, or another way that the Bible talks about it, is being regenerated, brought to life first, is critically important before you actually begin to attempt to live the Christian life. It's absolutely essential. Otherwise, you simply lack the resources to be able to do everything that comes after. It's like trying to make a call with your iPhone when the iPhone is dead. The first thing you need to do is plug it in and put power to it. Then you can make the call. Otherwise, it's just a nice little expensive paperweight. And that's the same way it is with human beings and their souls and their lives. If you're not able to do the things that the Bible says that a Christian ought to be able to do, even haltingly and imperfectly, then you maybe need to ask yourself, do I need to be plugged in first? Do I need to be filled with power first? Do I need to come to Jesus Christ and be saved first? 
And, and it's good to question ourselves. It's good to examine ourselves for evidence of whether or not that's what's really happened to us. As a matter of fact, the Bible actually commands that we do that. And it's not something that we need to do regularly once we've done it and gotten a satisfactory answer, but it is something that we need to do. And if you have a Bible and you want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, you will see that Paul actually recommends this to everyone who reads his words. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote about this in Mere Christianity, and he says this, we are all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure, or ambition, and hoping, in spite of all this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As He said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat." If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. And to be born again, folks, is to be plowed up and re-sown. And if that's happened to you, you'll find certain things infallibly, although maybe intermittently, it stops and starts, some things stronger, some things weaker, but infallibly, you'll find certain things beginning to happen inside of you. You'll find a yearning for God. You'll find an increasing discomfort and dislike of sin in your own life. You'll find a growing interest in the Scriptures because when you pick them up, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's involved in the operation and they come to life for you. You'll find an ability to believe the Scriptures, and especially the parts of the Scripture that our culture is inclined to disbelieve or to view with hostility. You'll find yourself seeking God in prayer, and prayer will become easier, and you will find that your prayers start to get answered things like that. Things like that are evidence of spiritual life inside of you. And if none of those things are happening inside of you, it may be that you don't have spiritual life. And that's a great danger. That's a, Jesus actually warned of that danger, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, on that last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the stuff we did for you. All the amazing stuff we did for you, Lord. And he'll look at them and he'll say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. They thought they knew him. He didn't know them. He was not in their lives. He was not dwelling inside of them. His spirit had not animated their heart and brought it to life and regenerated them. And so they were full of activities that looked good on the outside but there was no life in them. That's a great danger, loved ones. 
It's a great danger to be full of activity on the outside and to have no life on the inside. You need to be plowed up and re-sown so that you can produce a harvest. And if you don't, if you don't see spiritual life inside of yourself, sit around and go, oh, woe is me, feel sorry for yourself, just go to Jesus and ask him to save you. Just go to Jesus and ask him to bring your dead heart to life. And if you do see life inside of you, thank him for saving you and proceed onward towards holiness because that's what we're here for. That's the starting point. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for putting the principles of new life inside of me, the seeds of all graces in the words of the Westminster. Now let's grow some seeds. Let's make a garden, Father, inside of my heart that is fruitful. I want a good tomato for Jesus in my heart to give to my God. Now, in the same way that Paul gave a representative list of the old life earlier in chapter 4, he's going to give us a, a representative list of the characteristics of a new life at the end of chapter 4 and in the beginning of chapter 5. And this is not an exhaustive list. There's other things that can and do happen, but it's a good start. And it gives us a kind of a structure to, to, to structure our thinking around. These are the kinds of things that happen when grace is operating in a heart. And I'm cooperating with the grace and I'm seeking to grow. And, and what he says is this, this is a movement from one habitual way of acting to another habitual way of acting. And he gives us six Six examples, and we're just going to use the balance of our time to go through that list and examine those six things together. Now, like I said, this is not exhaustive, but it is representative. These are the kinds of things that should happen. Number one, he says, you will go from lying in all of its various forms to truth with your neighbor, speaking the truth to your neighbor. The Greek literally says, on account of this, take off the lie. And the word for lie is pseudos, where we get our English word, our English prefix pseudo, which basically means fake. And in, sometimes there's fakery that's not intended to deceive. You ladies buy these pseudo pearl or faux pearl necklaces, and, and you're hopefully not trying to trick the insurance company into insuring it and then, and then have it get lost or something like that. No, there's, there's fakery that's not intended to deceive. But then there's fakery that is intended to deceive. And this is fakery that's intended to deceive your neighbor. Now, let me mention just in passing that when the, the New Testament uses the word brothers, it's referring to your fellow Christians. And when it uses the word neighbor, it's talking about everyone, whether Christian or not. And here Paul presses upon his readers the absolute necessity of truthfulness with your neighbor, with everyone that you deal with. Now, this is the second time within 10 verses that Paul has addressed Christians about the issue of truthfulness and lies. He does it in verse 15, and in verse 15, it was about your duty uh, to the truth spoken in love to your fellow believer. Here he extends that duty to the rest of the whole planet. 
What he's basically saying is that God's people will be known as people of the truth. People whose mouths and whose tongues speak only the truth. Do you begin to get the idea that that this issue is highly, highly important to God if he's going to mention it within 10 verses twice? It's highly necessary for the Christian life. He doesn't just say, stop lying, y'all. He also says, start saying what's true to the people around you. In other words, it's not just a negative duty to avoid something. It's a positive duty to do something, to speak truth. Silence won't cut it. I mean, silence is better than lying, but you're not fulfilling the duty that Christ is laying on you here by being silent. It's not the the absence of lying words that, that Paul is only concerned about here, but it's also the presence of truthful words. And he says you have a duty to both. Don't lie. Don't be silent about the truth when the truth needs to be told. Speak the truth instead. Now, why is this so important? Because we honestly, I don't think, think it's very important at all, given the amount of lies that fly around between us all the time. All the time. We don't think it's that important. Why is it important? Well, because lying is the foundation of every other sin. Deception and falsehood are the necessary preconditions for every other sin. Think about what we know about the devil and how the devil became the devil. It's, it's common to say that pride was his downfall, and that's not untrue so far as it goes. You, but if you remember the story or if you know the story as it's kind of sketched out for us in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, he was an angel, the highest angel perhaps, probably. He was a created being of great power and great beauty, but still a created being. And he looked at himself and he fell in love with himself and he decided that he wanted to usurp God and place himself on God's throne. Now that's the pride part, yes. But what's behind the pride? What's behind that is a lie. Satan lied to himself. Because how could a creature, no matter how powerful, defeat and overcome the omnipotent God who made him? That God is by definition far more powerful than the being that he created. And so Satan concocted a lie. I'm quite capable, he said to himself, of knocking God off of his throne and taking his place for myself. And then his pride arose from believing that falsehood. I will therefore ascend, he said. I will be like the Most High, he said. I, I, I. In reality, he couldn't do anything unless the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who continually upholds all things by the word of his power, granted him that ability to do it. All of your sins and all of mine require lies to maintain the illusion that there is nothing wrong and everything is good with you. And my sins require it, just like yours do. They require you to lie to yourself. They require you to lie to the people in your life. They require you to lie to God. Sin is built on lies. That's why fundamentally Jesus doesn't say the devil is proud. He says he's a liar 
and the father of lies. That is the baseline fundamental situation. And we are not to participate in Satan's way of being, period. Lying is huge. And Paul says, stop lying. Take it off. Take off the lie. Put on the truth. Speak truth to your neighbor. For you are joined to your neighbor by your common humanity. And if your neighbor is a Christian, then you're joined even more deeply. Your duty to the truth is strengthened because you both share the same indwelling spirit of Christ. So that's the first one. Stop lying. Start speaking the truth. Second one. Go ahead and be angry when it's warranted, but don't dwell in anger for very long because it's spiritually dangerous. As we learned when we studied the Sermon on the Mount a few years ago, anger is not a sin in and of itself, at least under certain circumstances. Basically, anger is a signal to you and to the other people around you that your will has been interfered with. And that's true for people. It's even true for animals. Interfere with their will, and you're liable to get the right? Now, if the will that's being interfered with is only exercising itself in a good way, and the person gets angry, there's no sin necessarily involved in that. If you get angry about a broken promise or some sin against you, it's no problem, really, so long as you handle it correctly going forward. But if the will is exercising itself wrongly and is interfered with and gets angry, then there is sin, and you don't have a right to your anger in that case, and, and it's unjustified anger. So if you're not doing anything wrong and a cop pulls you over just because the cop's in a jerky mood that day, you have cause for anger. But if you're driving 10 miles an hour over the speed limit and blowing through red lights and a cop pulls you over, suck it up. Deal with it. You are in the wrong, and you have no cause to be angry. But just because anger is not sinful doesn't mean it's a good thing. A headache isn't sinful, but do you really want one? So even if we're not sinfully angry, says Paul, we should strive to get out of anger as quickly as possible because anger is always an occasion for sin, and it can turn into all kinds of ugly things. It can turn into wrath, which possesses you. It can turn into hatred. It can turn into discord and loud arguments and bitterness and a concerted effort to do harm somehow to the person that you're angry at. And it usually does, frankly, when it's cherished and worshiped and fetishized. We love anger in our culture today. We think it's a good thing. We think it's actually harmful to you if you don't get angry. You know, it's like, it's like they're afraid you're going to like explode like a tire that's got too much pressure in it or something. And so we're like, oh, let that anger out. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not good to keep that bottled up. Well, it's, no, you're wrong. Nobody, nobody says that about love, right? No, keep that love to yourself. Don't keep that all bottled up. You know, that, I mean, you'll, you'll explode with love. So just make sure that you're gushing love all over everybody or you won't be psychologically healthy. Nobody says that. We just say that about anger. Well, the fact of the matter is, 
Anger is something that we should deal with and not have. We should, instead of bottling it up, the best thing to do is just not have it. And if we learn how to walk correctly with Jesus, we will not have it. And so there's, there's nothing that can be done in anger that can't be done better without anger. And so we should strive to get rid of it. Now, how do you get rid of anger? Well, anger usually involves a sense, abiding anger involves a sense that I've been wounded. I've, been, I've had something precious taken from me that I may not ever get back. And, I, and, and that's a valid feeling, right? That happens. But when you say, okay, God, I place all of this in your hands. And the thing that was taken from me, in your grace, I can let go of. Because you are sufficient for me, and whatever I'm missing, because something was taken from me, whatever I'm missing, you can supply. And so I'm just going to trust you to do that, and I'm going to let go of my anger. Oh, there's a, there's a great deal of peace to be found there, loved ones. Some of you are angry at people who've been dead for 20 years. Some of you are angry about stuff that's happened to you 50 years ago. And you've been angry your whole life. And it's spilled over into the lives of people that you love, and it's harmed them, frankly. And just to, to be able to say, you know what, I can just let go of this. I can let go of this. And I can trust Jesus to make up whatever is lacking because he is my sufficiency. And I, I'd say this as a recovering anger addict, to just be able to let go of it. And it's not saying that the person did you right or what they did doesn't matter or that you just turn them over to God. Lord, there's you deal with them. Vengeance is yours, Lord. Knock yourself out. You know, you, you know what you're afraid of? You're afraid he's going to forgive them and they're going to get saved. And then, then you won't get your pound of flesh either on earth or in heaven. So you're like, Lord, damn them to hell. Amen. Right? Because you want them to suffer. Well, do you want you to suffer? Because you're not any better than they are. They just let go. Let God deal with it as he sees fit. And praise him for his sufficiency in the midst of your anger. Next, says Paul, we deal with the thief. The Greek word is literally the klepto, the klepton. And the klepto should immediately cease klepting. He should immediately cease stealing. And then he should go out and he should get his lazy rear end a job. And in particular, Paul says, a job with which you work with your hands. And they should literally wear themselves out. It's not the, the word for work, for labor there, is, is wearing oneself out with their hands so that they accumulate enough that not only their own needs are met, but they also have enough extra to give to others. Now, there are so many nuanced ways to steal aren't there? And we don't even think about that. One of the things I love about the, like the Westminster Shorter Catechism is it goes through and it lists like 
all the ways that you can violate the Ten Commandments, and I, and I asked for some slides to be made here, and let's just look at all the ways you can steal that you're not supposed to steal anymore. Uh, some of these may be a little hard to understand. If it's appropriate, I'll explain them. Question 140 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, thou shalt not steal. What are the duties required by the Eighth Commandment? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, in other words, you do what you say you're going to do, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due. So, for instance, if people are under God to be honored and you don't honor them, you are stealing. You're stealing their honor. So, rendering to each one his due. Also, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. Have you ever borrowed something and broken it or lost it and went, hope I don't see that person again for another year or two? No, no, make restitution. Otherwise, you're stealing. Giving and lending, lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. So in other words, if you see somebody without a coat who's literally cold and you have an extra coat, you're stealing from them by not giving them your extra coat. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible says. And the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. So you don't get all wrapped up in your stuff and say, I couldn't possibly share this with somebody else because this is my stuff. And it, I'll tell you a true story. So I had a, a pickup that I bought from a, a neighbor in Carothersville, Missouri. And uh, this, it was a 1970 GMC pickup. And it had belonged to a John Deere implement dealer, and they had destroyed the bottom of the bed carrying around John Deere stuff, so they had welded a half-inch plate steel bed into the bottom of that truck. And it had a, a 250 cubic inch six-cylinder, so it was a real power monster. Didn't have any air. It had a three-speed on the column. And, uh, and I loved that truck. I loved it. And it was the first engine I ever rebuilt. And when I rebuilt the engine in, in, uh, in, in sort of a, an homage to the original owners, I painted the block John Deere green and the valve cover and the oil pan John Deere yellow. I went down to John Deere and got their paint, painted it. And I loved that truck. Well, I had, a, I had an extra vehicle and I had led a guy to Christ whose car had died. And, uh, and he was, you know, he was unemployed and he was looking for a job. And, and getting back on his feet and everything. And, and, and I said, uh, I said uh, I'll loan you my pickup until you get on your feet, because I wasn't driving it much. And, and so I'd be driving around Columbia, Missouri in my car, and I'd look up at an intersection, and I'd see my friend Paul in my pickup. And he'd smile and wave. He's all happy. And I'm looking, I'm like, that guy's driving my pickup. That kind of bothers me. That's my, my pickup. You know, and he'd tootle off down the road, and I'd watch my pickup fade into the distance, and, 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 and I loaned it to him for uh, about two months, and finally I couldn't stand it anymore. 
And one of the guys at the, at the mechanic shop that I, that I worked with was getting rid of a 1978 Buick Regal that was a little rusty but in mechanically good shape. And, uh, and I bought that car for $700 and I gave it to Paul to get my pickup back. Because it was easier for me to go buy a guy another car than it was to watch him twirling around town in my pickup. My heart was a little too attached to the pickup. Now, I wish I had that pickup back because it was no rust on it and everything. I put a four-speed in it and mm, it was a good truck. Right? But I don't. It's gone. And, and what God wants us to do, it's okay to have your stuff. And it's okay to have, you know, I mean, you don't want to be like sharing your wedding ring or something like that. But, but your stuff shouldn't control you. You shouldn't have your affection so set on your stuff that it's not available when God says, hey, give that away. Or just loan it and let it benefit somebody else for a while. So, so we don't allow our hearts then to be fixed on these things. We also, if we're not going to steal, are to exercise a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose of the things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition. In other words, if you need a car, and most people do, take care of it. Change the oil. Have it maintained. And if, and if you need a car and you don't have one, then go get a job and buy one and then take care of it and learn how to use it appropriately. If you've got a house, take care of your house. If you can't afford to take care of your house, sell your house and buy a smaller house that you can afford to take care of. Take care of your stuff. Take care of it because it's God's gift to you. If you've got a salary, don't waste your money. Don't waste your money on stupid things because you're, you're stealing from yourself. If you know you're going to need to retire one day, save some money. Invest in your retirement. Otherwise, you're stealing from yourself and will wind up taking from other people when you could have supported yourself. You are to have, if you're going to keep the, the Eighth Commandment, you are to have a lawful calling. In other words, a job. And diligence in your job. You are to be frugal. You are to avoid unnecessary lawsuits. You are to avoid suretyship. You know what suretyship is? Co-signing for a loan. So when that jerk doesn't pay, guess who gets paid? Gets to pay? You. you know, don't do that. You do not go as a surety for another person. You don't co-sign on their debts. Or other like engagements. And an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, which today we call human trafficking, receiving of anything that is stolen. That ever happened to you? I remember when I was working, in, all, my, all my fun stuff happened when I was a mechanic. There was one night where I was working in the Conoco shop, and these guys, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and these guys come in, and uh, they, the doors were all open, and I was out in the bay, cleaning the bay, and, and this guy comes up, and he's got a brand new Daiwa open-face fishing reel. Now, this is about 1992, 
1992, that fishing reel had a price tag on it from Walmart that said $100. And they said, you want to buy a fishing reel? I said, how much? They said, 20 bucks. I said, where did it come from? And they said, Walmart. And I said, no, where did it come from? And he looked at me and said, Walmart. And I said, sure. So I bought that $100 fishing reel, brand new in the box, for $20. And I went home and went to bed. And I couldn't sleep. I tossed and I turned. And the next morning I got up, there were five Walmarts in that, no, three Walmarts in that town. And I just went to the, the closest one the next morning. And I went to the manager and I set it down on the desk. And I said, I bought this last night from a couple of guys for 20 bucks. And I'm pretty sure um, it was the wrong thing to do. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, do you want a job? I said, no, I do not want a job working at Walmart. And then he asked me if I could point out the two guys if I saw them on the security camera. And I said, sure. And they were employees there who were stealing from their employer. And he was all impressed because I brought this. He even gave me my $20 back. He was all impressed because I brought back the stolen reel. I'd have been much more impressed with myself if I had not bought the stolen reel in the first place. Because to receive stolen property is to steal. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations. That had to do with the time in Scotland, for instance, where they just cast the people off the land so that they could, who had been farming it for centuries, so that they could raise sheep. And the people ended up building little villages on the side of cliffs and becoming fishermen because they could no longer farm. They'd just been thrown off the land. And all under, oh, I'm sorry, uh, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies and getting, keeping, and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise idleness. Oh, you're lazy, you're stealing. You're laying around on the couch all day instead of working and being productive. You're stealing. Idleness, prodigality. That means just using stuff up without really shepherding it or thinking about its value. Wasteful gaming, like the lottery. And all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding others of the due use and comfort of that estate when God hath given it to us. Do none of those things, says Paul. Work hard, lead a quiet life of integrity, be frugal, live simply, mind your own business, and don't do dumb stuff, and don't do wicked stuff. Fourthly, we are not to use our mouths for evil, but we are instead to use them for good. Now, there are several words for evil 
in the New Testament Greek, and they're highly instructive. The, one is the, the word scolios, from which we get our English word scoliosis. What is that? That's a bent spine. It's a bent person with a bent character. If you're scolios, you're crooked. Another word used uh, that's come down into English today is kakos or kakos. And uh, that's sort of a, a non-specific word for general evil. We get our nursery word kaka from this word. And then there's the word used here, sapros. And that literally means rotten or decaying and full of stench. And it specifically refers to smelly, decaying fruit or smelly, decaying meat. And words can spread sin like rotten things spread rot. And Paul says, don't talk rot. It damages people. Instead, he says, use your tongue to bring people into a condition of health and wholeness, and then use your words to help keep them there. Bring them a blessing. I think that, you know, we don't want to be superstitious, but I think that we sort of, as Reformed Christians, highly underestimate the spiritual effect of our words. That words cut to the heart. That words are themselves a kind of power. And, and the energy behind our words, whether it's a good energy or a bad energy, whether you're cursing or blessing, makes a difference in the person who hears that and receives it. And all you got to do is look at the way some little kids are talked to and how their little souls are malformed because of words. You don't have, have to lay a belt on them. You never, never see a scar. But their little souls are scarred because of words. And Paul says, don't use your words for evil. Use them for good. Fifthly, Paul says, don't be unkind and bitter, but be kind and loving. Now, these are the sins that anger leads to. And when we, we are to put them away, we're to take them off. Bitterness is a, is a form of hatred. It's the, it literally referred to in the original Greek, the taste of bile in your mouth when you're sick. And it's also used for the venom of a poisonous snake. The venom of a poisonous snake was its bitterness. And, and it's a resentful spirit that refuses to be reconciled. Wrath and anger are obviously similar, but wrath is a passionate rage. It's, you can't talk to somebody that's in a state of wrath. They just won't listen to you because they're just like, and, and, and that's a, one kind of uncontrolled anger, but there's another kind that's cold and sullen and hostile and just wants to get even and is settled deep in the heart. And then there's the word clamor. He brings up clamor. Clamor is used of people raising their voices and shouting at each other. Clamor is what you, what you would hear when you're tempted to call the police because your next door neighbors are in a situation where they might not be safe with one another, a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend. That's clamor is the problem there. And then there's slander. The word literally is blasphemia, and it's speaking evil against others with the intent of harming them, with the intent of harming their reputation. And then there is malice. 
Malice is a, a general ill will. It's a plotting to do harm at the next opportunity. And there is no place for these things among Christ's people. They are all evidence of a will to harm. God's people aren't those who desire to harm others. That's, to belong to God means you've given all of that up. We desire instead to love others. We don't do evil. We overcome evil with good. And if you habitually and happily do harm to another person with your tongue, you need to check your heart and see if you're actually regenerate because you are enjoying something which you ought to hate. And it's poison. You need to go to Jesus. And you need to make your calling and election sure. And then you need to say, Jesus, let's you and I together cut this out of my life. Cut it out of my life, Jesus. It doesn't belong in your kingdom. How are we to be instead? Instead, we are to be kind. Now, the word for kindness in, in Greek is krestos with an E. And uh, the word for Christ in Greek is Christos with an I. And early Christians immediately noticed how close those two words are. And they thought that was a providential gift to them, particularly in evangelism. You want to come to this Christos, Christ, because he is Christos, kind. And we are to be like him. Kindness is what marks God's character. And, and Jesus tells us that one of, in one of his talks that God is kind even towards people who are ungrateful and selfish. We are to be also tender-hearted, tender-hearted. Now, you remember when I told you, oh, maybe back in April or so, that the ancients viewed the lower abdominal organs and particularly the bowels and the kidneys as the seat of the emotions. We say heart, they said guts. And, uh, and we see that here. The Greek word for guts is splankna. And in English, we say tender-hearted. In biblical Greek, it's you splankna, literally good-gutted. You want to be good-gutted towards people. You are easily and appropriately moved to compassionate feelings and acts when you possess you splankna. You see a problem and you go, oh, I wonder what I can do to fix that. You know, it was so nice just to be able to, to sit out here in the parking lot yesterday and just have, have people come by and to see the kids and to, to, to go here. You know, we just want you to be able to go to school with your head held up a little bit and, uh, and to be able to just enjoy school without worrying about some other things that you're too young to worry about. It was so good. Why was it so good? Because we had you splankna towards them. We were good gutted towards them. We were tender hearted towards their situation in life and where they were at. That's how we're to, to be. Uh, you are also to forgive others, he says. Forgive others their offenses quickly and easily because you know that God in Christ forgave you. And you want to imitate God. And you especially want to imitate Christ as the human face of God. So you habitually walk in love, not hate. You quietly and naturally and unselfconsciously give yourself up for others. You make sacrifices, not so that you can get something from others, even a word of thanks and recognition, but simply to please God, who notices everything that you do. And simply for, for your words to be and your works to be a fragrant offering to him, which pleases him. 
Finally, says Paul, you move away from using sex wrongly to using it thankfully. God gave sex as a part of a loving union between a husband and a wife, period. That's all. And the words that Paul uses refer to inappropriateness of every other expression of sex, both hetero and homosexual. In other words, God says, this is what it's for, this is all that it's for, and any other thing that you do with it is wrong, is sinful. Don't do it. And that includes, apparently, filthy jokes and filthy talk. It also includes covetousness, particularly we're told in the Ten Commandments not to covet another's wife or husband, and the kind of covetousness that is part and parcel of, for instance, pornography. And instead, sex is to be used appropriately and modestly with thanksgiving to God for this good gift. You must learn to possess and control your body rather than your body possessing and controlling you. And that's very crucial for one who truly has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, we are God's new humanity, and we have seen the reasoning behind what God expects of us throughout all of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, but it helps sometimes, doesn't it, to put skin on it. And I just want to close with a a story. Um, Some of you will have heard me mention the name Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, Lloyd-Jones was a a pastor. uh, He was Welsh, but he pastored part of his life in Wales and part in England. And uh, when he was in Wales, he he left a, a very promising medical degree, basically the equivalent of Harvard Medical School or Johns Hopkins or something like that. And he went to take this tiny, failing Methodist, Calvinistic Methodist church in a very economically depressed area that was full of very irreligious people, prostitutes, gambling, drunkenness, the whole bit. I mean, it, it made Youngstown look good, okay? So, th- so think about going to a church in the middle of the South Side as a doctor, a Harvard-trained doctor. Give all that up and go take what they can pay you. And, and go be a preacher there in the most difficult of circumstances and preach the gospel. And that's exactly what Lloyd-Jones did because he wanted to see the power of God move in the most unlikely places. And God sent revival. And God sent revival that changed very unlikely people. One of those unlikely people was a man who became known, who was, whose nickname was Staffordshire Bill. And here I pick up from the biography. There were others who came, not as a result of Christian testimony, but simply because they had heard about what was being preached in Sandfields. That was the nickname for the church, Sandfields. William Thomas, or Staffordshire Bill, as he was commonly known, was drinking in the working men's club of Aberavon one after Saturday, Sunday afternoon. As usual, he was by himself, for even men who had few moral standards had long since learned to avoid his filthy language and general unpleasantness whenever they could. In the words of Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, there he was drinking himself into his usual sodden condition and as he afterwards confessed, feeling low, hopeless, and depressed, trusting to the drink to drown those inward pangs and fears which sometimes disturbed him. 
There were several men in little groups of twos and threes in the club room drinking and talking, and suddenly he found himself listening, at first involuntarily, but then anxiously, to a conversation between two men at the next table to his. He caught the words, the forward, and then something about the preacher, and then a complete sentence that was to change his whole life. Yes, said the one man to the other. I was there last Sunday night, and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. Of the rest of the conversation, he heard nothing, but arrested and now completely sobered, he said to himself, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. I'll go to that chapel myself and see what the man says. But William Thomas's intention was not easily fulfilled. That first Sunday, he walked to the open gate of the railings that fenced the church, stood for some minutes, and then his nerve failed him, and he turned and went home. Although throughout the wretched week that followed, he waited for the next Sunday to arrive, somehow he reached the chapel only to hear singing, faced with the realization that he was late and with his heart in his boots and full of some nameless fear, he once more turned away and went home. Now, though, his misery was increased. He had no thought of attempting to drown his terrors of conviction in drink. The Spirit of God had already begun to work in his heart a work which would prevent him from going back to his old ways. The third Sunday evening, he was again at the gate, wondering nervously what he should do next, when one of the congregation welcomed him with the words, Are you coming in, Bill? Come and sit with me. That night, Staffordshire Bill passed from condemnation to life. He found, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones tells us, that he could understand the things that were being said. He believed the gospel, and his heart was flooded with a great peace. Old things had passed away, and all things had become new. The transformation on his face was remarkable, and it had the radiance of a saint. As he walked out that night, lovingly shepherded by J.M., they passed me, and J.M. said, Mrs. Jones, this is Staffordshire Bill. I shall never forget the agonized look on his face where he flinched as though he had been struck with a sudden blow. Oh, no, oh, no, he said. That's a bad old name for a bad old man. I am William Thomas now. Well, he was a raging alcoholic and well-known in the town. He, he drove a, a cart, a pony-drawn cart, and sold fish door to door. And it was common to see him drunk and passed out laying on the fish while his pony took him home because the pony knew the way. That never happened again. He immediately stopped. But the interesting thing was not all of his habits went away so easily. And sometimes when we get converted, sometimes God just, uh, even after we're converted, gives us grace and some sin, which he knows that we just can't handle struggling with, just falls off of us. And it's wonderful when it happens, but we're not to expect that as the norm. And one of Bill's other besetting sins was a foul mouth. And so here he is converted, he's left aside the drink, he's a new man in Christ, and listen to the following, and with this I close. What now? Now there must be that most necessary part of warfare, the follow-up operations, or clearing up of pockets of resistance and a constant vigilance. These operations could be numerous and varied much in their form and strength of the resistance offered. Sometimes their very intransigence could make the poor warrior, if not for his friends, wonder what, if the first battle had really ended in victory or not. 
a lifetime of bad habits and the need of teaching and of understanding in spiritual matters, the lack of sympathy from family, friends, and workmates, varying from a bored lack of interest to a vicious disapproval, and always the active attempts of the devil, using any and every opportunity and circumstance to hinder the growth of this new life. All such things show tough resistance to being dealt with. William Thomas seemed to have a little trouble with the lesser things. I'm sorry, seemed to have little trouble with the lesser things, nor with some of the bigger hindrances either. His drinking habit just left him with no effort on his part to deal with it. It had been a part of the whole of his adult life. There were not many days without a drink playing a big part of them, not many evenings and nights that he was not totally incapacitated through alcohol. And yet at his conversion, his desire for it left him and he was never a problem. It was never a problem in his Christian life. There were, however, other areas of fierce struggle and heading the dark list was bad language. Staffordshire Bill was a foul mouth, was foul mouth, so much so that even the toughest of his worldly acquaintances were sickened by him. One of the reasons why he always found himself left to his own company in some deserted corner of the place where they had been drinking. With his conversion came the conviction that he must do something about it. And he realized that it was dishonoring to God and offensive to man. He must stop swearing and using bad language. But now he discovered that he was up against something that was just too strong for him. He could not speak without swearing. He could not utter a sentence that was not peppered with oaths and blasphemies. He could not help it and he could not stop it. The truth is that he did not know that he was doing what he was doing until the words came out. And then the realization that these horrible terms and words came from his own lips sickened and shamed him. And he was driven to a frenzy of despair and to abject misery. It may seem strange that he never sought the help of a fellow Christian in this matter, but he was too ashamed. And he suffered for some weeks, little dreaming that deliverance was at hand. It came about in this way. He was getting up one morning and gathering his clothes together to get dressed, but there were no socks among his clothes. He went to the bedroom door and shouted for his wife, I can't find my blankety-blank socks. Where are the blankety-blank things? As he heard himself, he realized that he had just, what he had just said and a great horror possessed him and he fell back on the bed in a paroxysm of despair. He cried aloud, oh Lord, cleanse my tongue. Oh Lord, I can't even ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. As he lay there and then got up from that bed, he knew that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His prayer, his cry of agony was heard and answered. It was his own testimony that from that moment to the end of his days, no swear word or foul or blasphemous word was ever again past his lips. Hearing his own account of this amazing deliverance on a subsequent Wednesday night at the fellowship meeting is something that we who were there will never forget. His face wet with tears and alight with an inner joy and wonder, his faltering voice broken with emotion, brought a warm wave of response from every heart. You see, that's what happens when Jesus comes into a life. You find yourself not wanting to do the things that you used to want to do very much. And you suddenly begin to hate them. And then you find, perhaps all at once, perhaps little by little, the power to do something about it. May it be ever so among us. Amen.